Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we'll look at an operations methodology called GitOps. How do Git, automation, and a development mindset help build a more resilient infrastructure? Plus, we'll visit the productivity corner, some audience feedback, all that and more on the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every episode is my cloud-building co-host, Brandon Johnson. How are you doing today, buddy? Doing well, Eric. Actually, uh, your uh, silly adjective is pretty accurate. I am helping a <laughs> customer building a, a, a cloud uh, right now, and uh, so we are uh, been doing that project for a while, and you know, it's, uh, a lot of stuff is finally falling into place, so I'm pretty happy about that. Also, uh, kind of building my own. Probably by the time everyone's listening to this, uh, I'll have uh, uh, some hardware in place, and I'm upgrading my lab and here at home, uh, ripping out um, my old hardware. I'll probably end up repurposing it and replacing my overt cluster with an OKD cluster. So I'm I'm looking forward to making that happen. How about yourself, Eric? Yeah, I've been uh, been pretty busy with work. I've been able to do more and more content creation, been designing workshops and building demos, talking to customers. It, it seemed like I had a long drought of, of back office type projects, so I'm really excited to be talking to people again, even if it is virtual. But as much fun as that's been, I ended up pulling the trigger last week on something I'm even more excited about. I ended up buying a server for my house. The home server went through about three different variations, from being a full server cabinet in the garage to uh, with multiple servers and, and, and a 10, 10 gig uh, data plane. <laughs> and then I kind of backed that down to we live in a condo right now. <laughs> so we're I'm going the route of one mega server. Uh, it's going to have a Ryzen CPU, 128 gigs of RAM, ton of storage. I figured this kind of is a good balance between the two different designs. It'll let me start building out some home automation uh, and, and spin up our home media server again on local infrastructure. You know, that's that's kind of key to this whole spouse approval factor, which, you know, a 22U cabinet really didn't get the spousal approval. So <laughs> that that's another benefit of going with the single server route. <laughs> so it, it'll be good for home infrastructure and also provide me a, a sandbox to kind of develop workshops and, and play with new projects for, for my day job as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was debating on keeping it simple and, and just going to, you know, back down to maybe one system, but I can't do simple. I go all in, <laughs> uh, keep, you know, got to keep, uh, the skills fresh no matter what. We're engineers. We have to over-architect everything. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, it's great that you're going with Ryzen's. Actually, I, uh, the server motherboards I picked actually have AM4 sockets. So I went with Ryzen CPUs as well. And so I'm, uh, very excited about that. Uh, they have IPMI. And I'm also thinking about putting in some GPUs, doing some uh, desktop virtualization through uh, Kubevert, and maybe even uh, tinkering around with uh, machine learning, a few other uh, fun projects. You know, with you rebuilding your home lab and with with me getting my, my mega server, I think we should probably plan an episode around how to get started with a home lab here in the near future. Yes, yeah, stay tuned for that. I think we'll record that. You know, maybe that'll be our end of year episode. 
So I, I think it's been decided right here on the air. Brandon and I are going to do a home lab episode probably here before the end of the year. So uh, before before we sit down to record that, we'd love it if you'd email us at contact at sudo.show with your hardware and what projects you're using your home lab for. We'd love the the ideas. We'd love the, the feedback. And speaking of feedback, we actually uh, got an email not too long ago from Chris, who wrote into the show, and he asked, In the recent Ask Me Anything episode, I believe I heard some comments regarding Linux and GNOME and tablets. Could you possibly expound on this? I've been yearning for Microsoft Surface Pro 7 equivalent that natively sports Linux out of the box, and I'm finding nothing. I'm waiting patiently to see if something comes along, but I may have to bite the bullet and go with the Surface Pro relegating my beloved Linux to a VM or WSL2. Thanks in advance. Love the show. You guys are great. You know, I'll, I'll admit on the mobile side, Linux isn't my, uh, it's not my primary driver. My brain is routed through my iPad Pro. <laughs> but Brandon, you've been collecting a number of mobile devices and, and some of them have really caught my attention. What's, uh, what's been your experience the last few weeks? All right. So <laughs> my wife thinks I'm insane and uh, so, so do I, for the record. I, I, <laughs> I need, I need to go to therapy. I don't know. Uh, I have a ton of devices. I currently have six tablet style devices that does not include my desktop machines my servers and my laptops these are tablet style devices so i have an ipad pro a thinkpad 10 gen 2 a thinkpad helix 2 an hp tablet pro 608 g1 a dell xps 12 9250 and i also just got a pine tab. All right. So except for the XPS 12, none of them are what I would describe as surface style tablets. And even then the XPS 12, in my opinion, is a poor example of a surface style device. I've seen people travel with these devices. They're not great devices for working on the plane because of the kickstand. Uh, Every person I see try to work with a a surface style device. Uh, I see them try to work their uh, work on their computer and it falls right off the the tray. I really personally like the the ThinkPad uh, Helix Two, uh, ThinkPad Ten Gen Two, uh, because they don't have that kickstand. I I, I actually I think that's a, a huge advantage of those devices. Uh, the HP Pro uh, Tablet Pro is a eight inch tablet and uh, that doesn't have a keyboard. But if you are dead set on surface style with the kickstand. I've seen folks on the internet use the ThinkPad X1 tablets, uh, the Gen 1, the Gen 2, or the Gen 3. And for the most part, from what I've understand is Linux works right out of the box. I actually have seen the Gen 3 work perfectly with Fedora. Uh, Everything works. The cameras work. Sleep works. Whole nine yards. You can buy... The X1 tablets, whether that's the Gen 1, 2, or 3, off eBay between $100 and $700. So obviously, it's depending on the generation and specs. Another one that I've seen work that I know uh, Das Geek has done uh, is uh, has done a video on is the Surface Go. For the most part, everything works on the Surface Go except for the camera. One of my big gripes with the Surface devices. One of the reasons why I have never pulled the trigger on a Microsoft Surface is because there's a lot of hacks. You have to build your own kernels in some cases that are patched. 
uh, so you can even boot the device. It's not worth it in my in my personal opinion for that. I would uh, I personally think that uh, the ThinkPad tablets are also better looking. Uh, so I, if you can grab a, a ThinkPad X1, go for that. If you really or if you uh, want something that's more that can be more convertible, like a poor man's uh, Surface Book, go with the ThinkPad Helix Two. I actually the Helix Two is probably my favorite tablet of the six that I own. I usually use that about the same amount as my iPad Pro um, here uh, here at the house. Uh, same with my ThinkPad Ten, but it really just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You know, I've really been encouraged by all the development and company interest for Linux on mobile. Things may be rough now, but they've come a long way in just a couple of years. I mean, companies like Pine64 are really paving the way to compete with the likes of Android. They have the right development model, build the hardware, then partner with the mobile OS communities to make it a seamless experience. I'm definitely watching this community very closely. I have a Pine phone, Pine tab. You know, the rest of those tablets I've already mentioned. I was a backer of the Librem 5, you know, still waiting on that. I think it is still a good market. The future is mobile. And if uh, the Linux community wants to have a future in end user computing, we need to get into that space. And I think we can do a better job than Android, quite frankly. Well, we'll have to look into the ThinkPad tablets or, or whatnot, because if, if I could find a Linux-powered alternative to my iPad Pro, I would I would love to give it a shot. Maybe, just maybe, I might continue to feed my tablet addiction, and I'll end up with a X1 Gen 3 tablet. Okay, so the next AMA is actually going to be an intervention for Brandon. Don't tell him, but yeah, the next next AMA is, is we're going to have an intervention. <laughs> actually, the uh, actually, uh, uh, or it could be the ThinkPad X12, which hasn't been released yet, but that's supposed to be a Surface a style device. So we'll see. We'll see which one by. Maybe I'll end up with both. You're you're not helping your case, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Brandon and I are looking at Linux on mobile, and even though we are rebuilding our home labs, our workloads vary quite a bit, and Lord knows that if we ever start traveling again, data latency will always be a factor. That's why I'll never let go of one account in particular, and that account is DigitalOcean. I know I've said it time and again how much I rely on DigitalOcean to host my servers, so you can really understand my excitement when they became a sponsor of the Pseudo Show. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DO for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With that platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure on their own Kubernetes offering, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products, and you can enjoy a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of the Pseudo Show podcast and member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Just go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 credit. That's good for two months and try out the new DigitalOcean app platform. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring this episode of the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. 
As, as a former systems administrator, I'm pretty passionate about how operations should be run and how members of the operations team should be handled. I, I do tend to get a little spun up, but for good reason. I mean, how many of us have been paged out at 2 a.m. to reboot a server that no one's going to use until at least 9 a.m. the next day? How many times are you out on PTO, on vacation with your family, and you get a phone call from back at the office? The kids are down playing in the ocean while you're sitting up in the hotel room with your laptop out. Glassdoor actually did a study a year or so ago and found that two out of three employees reported working well on vacation. The study also found that the average American employee uses about 50% of their PTO. In total, about 212 million PTO days are forfeited uh, per year. And Eric, I got to admit, I'm guilty of that. I don't use up all my PTO. And, you know, it's something I need to remedy. And I I was very guilty of that when I was a system administrator and a developer, especially when I was uh, one of the only system administrators or or someone with Linux knowledge on staff. I will admit I'm guilty of this, too. And this is a huge problem, especially now with uh, with the idea of what a normal day looks like. It has just been thrown out. So without taking regular time off, some studies have actually shown it to be detrimental to, to your health. So think about the last six months and how none of us have been able to take vacations out of town. My uh, my better half and I were talking the other day about how, hey, we should go to a move. Oh, wait, the movie theaters aren't open. Or well, maybe we could go. Oh, nope, they're closed, too. So, I mean, it's just become even more difficult to, to make sure that you take time off. And that, that can impact not only your mental health, but also your, your physical health even. I had a mentor a few years ago who told me that you should take time every day to disconnect from everything. You should take time to get away from a long weekend now and then, maybe once every month or two, and then to unplug completely for a few days a couple of times a year, whether that's a, a seven to 10 day vacation. It's, it's those times where you just unplug from everything that really helps you build memories and stronger bonds with your family, with your friends. And, and the one thing that people tend to forget is even with yourself. I mean, I... I took a couple of hours off this morning just to sleep in. I read a book, and then I kind of picked up with my normal routine where I showered, I got dressed, and and started working for the day. But I took those couple of hours to kind of rest and recuperate myself. What you find is when you take that time off, you don't really lose that time. You actually get it back with interest because you come back recharged, you come back more excited, and you come back with a clearer head. A lot of the audience right now is probably asking, what does this have to do with GitOps? I mean, <laughs> but it, it has everything to do with it. I mean, one, one of the things I was joking, and it was always tongue-in-cheek, especially when I was in operations, is I want to automate myself out of a job. I, was, I wasn't all about automating myself out of a job. It was actually automating the repetitive tasks automating the things that were waking me up at two o'clock in the morning so that it would handle that for me while I was asleep or on vacation so that I could actually do more important things, writing new automation, designing new systems, making everything work better. You know, not, not just essentially toiling down in the engine room with Scotty and fixing a problem uh, with uh, with the captain yelling down, when is this going to get fixed, right? I'd rather build out the automation and make that my job. You know, that, that really spoke to me on, an, on a deep Star Trek level. 
<laughs> you're you're absolutely right. I mean, people think about automation and they worry about losing their job over it. When in fact, you're not going to automate yourself out of a job. What you're going to do is you're going to automate away the pieces that you don't want to have to do. I shouldn't have to spin up a server by hand and spend hours creating user accounts and copying over SSH keys. Those are things that we can automate. Why do we have all these very intelligent systems if we're not going to let these systems do what they were designed to do? And that's to to make our lives as humans easier. You know, one of the th- one of the things that actually got me into Linux was uh, the fact that I could script with uh, a lot of intelligence. Whether that was in Python, you can even do some a bit of intelligent, you know, a bit of rules in Bash with you know with simple if else statements, right? But for me at the time, that's what really separated uh, the mm-hmm. Windows administrators from the Unix and the Linux administrators. Is that Unix and Linux administrators had a cool job <laughs> of writing scripts and could automate like a like a one one analogy that. I, not analogy simile that's been used was uh, migrating DNS on Linux versus Windows. You can fully automate a DNS change in Linux without any problems. Uh, back in the two thousand Windows two thousand three days, it was a lot of manual pointing and clicking. Now it's completely different. You have PowerShell that can help you with this and, sol- and solves a lot of that pro- that problems. But back then, you didn't have that. And thanks to automation, whether we're talking Ansible or Chef or other tools in in the toolbox that solve these problems in an easier way, uh, that's made our lives a whole lot easier. And then we end up getting to adopt some really cool uh, technologies that you know usually were just uh, until uh, mm-hmm. really in the last five years associated only with development. Taking a quick step back, you mentioned Python and, and Bash and building intelligence into into these programming language. Whereas nowadays, there has never been an easier time to get involved in the automation space because now instead of writing hundred or five hundred or I, I've even seen a nine hundred line automation script. Nowadays, you just write it in a playbook. Nowadays, YAML is seen almost as as if it's a, its own programming language. It, it's not as in depth as as something like Python, but it is arguably just as powerful because now everything isn't. You, you compared Windows to Linux. We used to talk about how how in Linux has an advantage over Windows because everything is in Linux is a file. Well, now we can take that a step further and talk about how. Yeah, everything in Linux may be a file, but now everything is is a YAML playbook. Whether it's whether it's automating your Kubernetes build, whether it's automated automating your infrastructure deployment with Terraform, or automating your configuration with with Ansible, or using GitLab CI to to automate your build jobs, everything seems to be a YAML file nowadays. So before we can start writing those playbooks and before we can start reaping the rewards of everything basically being a a YAML file now, we need to establish a single source of truth. All of this configuration doesn't do us any good if it lives on Joe's laptop because you never know when Joe's going to leave the company or when Joe's laptop's going to get coffee spilled all over it. So you need a single source of truth. This will be the one place we go to provision, configure, and maintain our infrastructure. Luckily, we have the perfect tool for that. We have Git. Git is a free and open source tool created by Linus Torvalds, by the way. And I looked it up just before we started recording. It had over 1,400 unique contributors with over 61,000 commits. So Git is kind of a big deal. 
gets used by the largest organizations. I, I think the company that is synonymous with Git, GitHub, that was proven with Microsoft purchasing them a couple of years ago for $7 billion. The other, the other company, GitLab, is all, that's also synonymous with Git, it is used all over the open source community and they have huge customers uh, utilizing their solutions. And, and there are other solutions for source control built around Git. Git is used for storing applications, playbooks, diagrams, presentation. Well, you, you name it. You can store it in Git. You can just interact with it right from the command line, and it follows a client-server distribution model. This allows for multiple users to develop code against the same repository at the exact same time. Another advantage to using Git is the ability to use version control. That is the bread and butter of Git is version control. If we go back in time a bit to my first job as a Linux systems administrator, it'll be pretty obvious why this is important. We thought we had this genius method of storing config files. We had an NFS share that was mounted on all of our servers, no matter if they were production, non-production, inside or outside the DMZ, every server. It's brilliant, right? <laughs> in this NFS share, we had, a, we had a series of folders roughly mirroring the Linux file system, where we kept templates of all the different versions of our configs. Because we weren't using get, we added an underscore and a v1, v2, etc. What happens when you edit and save the file instead of making a new copy of the file first? <laughs> well, if something breaks and you have a bad config file and you overwrote your rollback config, <laughs> so you're you're kind of hosed. Good luck trying to fix that at 2 in the morning. With git, you have you have metadata that tracks changes, who committed those changes and when. This allows you to track your application as it develops over time, as well as having rollback points right there in your repository. Get blame. <laughs> Actually, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Remind, reminds me, every single time we'd make a chain, I, this was before Git, before we even thought, no one would have really thought about using uh, version control and ops. We'd ha I'd see dot back one dot back two yep, right yep. there in slash etc not not a lot of fun e easy to completely screw something up so the flexibility of git goes deeper depending on your workflow the most common approach is to have your main repository known as the master branch then you can create feature branches essentially snapshots of the main code base so you can make changes these Branches are designed to be short-lived and focus on making one change to one feature or but or one bug at a time. Once you're satisfied with your code change, you merge it back into the master branch. So this gets really interesting, especially when you're doing things like with Ansible. So you can make a change, make a change in a playbook. Uh, you can run it against your test system and then merge it back into the master and. Next time that gets ran against prod, it's there available right away. Part of the part of the strength about Git is its flexibility. Usually what you'll see in development is the master and feature branch model. But I've also seen projects that use branches as engines for releases. Basically, the master branch serves as a rolling code base. All the latest changes live there. Then there are protected branches that serve as snapshots in time. Maybe you have a monthly application release. You can take a snapshot, set it as a release branch, protect it. Then you can have automation in place that creates your RPMs, ISOs, or whatever the delivery method for your application may be. That's Git for you in a nutshell. However, the funny thing about Git is the more I learn about it, the more I realize I've barely touched the surface of, of the advanced functionality of Git. 
Now, how does that factor into GitOps? According to CloudBees, GitOps is a set of practices that empower developers to perform tasks which typically fall under the purview of IT operations. So like DevOps, GitOps has several fundamental tenets. The first is collaboration. GitOps works to break down the barriers between ops and dev. Operations teams work to create templates that are built and tested to meet enterprise standards. In more mature organizations, the security team is even involved early on in the build process to ensure the resulting server and playbooks meet certain security and audit requirements. And something I I learned not too long ago, actually, is that GitOps, despite the name, is not designed for operations. It's a method in which operations can better serve the development community within their organization. So, for instance, the idea behind ops creating templates and playbooks to hand over to dev is because inherently dev is very slow. Operations is measured and evaluated based upon uptime and stability of an application, whereas development is pushed to squash more bugs, develop new features, revamp the UI. So they need to move at a very agile, very quick tempo. So you have two competing ideologies on how an infrastructure should be run. It can create conflict, and it it develops this culture of just throwing tasks over the wall. GitOps is designed to reduce that. Now, instead of development putting in a ticket to operations for a non-production system and waiting weeks, even months, for something as simple as a VM, now development can interact with self-service portal or, say, run a Terraform template to provision their own systems at the time that they need it. No more waiting, no more bickering back and forth because the dev and ops teams work together to build these templates to begin with. The next tenet of GitOps is declarative. Many of the most popular automation tools like Terraform, Ansible, Salt, and others use YAML to create a recipe of what packages, users, kernel modules should be included in a build. This has the benefit of systems administrators, DBAs, security engineers, developers, project managers, business analysts, all having an eye into the build of an application. With all of these YAML files that define the infrastructure, the build pipelines being stored in a central Git repository, it enables a single source of truth, one place for all teams, not just development, not just operations, but all teams, to go to understand how a plugin or feature operates. This factors into observability. Few things drain the life out of a team faster than having a team or members of a team who like to keep their work from the rest of the team or worse, who implement solutions so complex no one but them can understand what a particular code block is doing. This was common practice for a very long time when developers or administrators sought to ensure job security by keeping information contained. Documentation was sparse, new hires took ages to complete onboarding, and this led to the creation of tribes within a department that slowed down the flow of work. A system administration job that I I was doing for a startup, which on the surface you would describe uh, had a DevOps culture. But when it came right down to it, everyone was uh, out for themselves. They didn't document anything. Code comments were terrible. So I had no idea what the, the application broke. I had no idea what the problem really even looked or what the block of code was even doing. I had an idea. I can read code. But it just it just frustrated me. And my predecessor didn't document anything. So I had to figure out my SQL passwords. I had to figure out how the MySQL system was tuned on my own. And what's even better about doing GitOps, at least the way I see it, is when you create the automation, you've documented it. 
because the documentation is your automation. The automation, if you can, with Ansible, Ansible is pretty human readable. You can immediately know what it's doing by, and you can go and go look at the configuration files, what it's changing. Like, I had a similar experience. I I worked for a company for all of maybe six months <laughs> as a as the only Linux systems administrator in the company. I had one other guy who carried a lot of tribal knowledge, but his depth of Linux knowledge was was more limited. He was a Windows admin. He didn't want to be a Linux admin. He but he knew enough to you know serve as a backup. Mostly, I tapped into his into his tribal knowledge. Problems is at the the company I work for, <laughs> there was. Not one, not two, not three, but probably four generations of systems administrators that have come and gone from this business. None of them lasted more than a year. So no one really understood what was going on. The The DBAs were trying to do an Oracle rack cluster upgrade at the time. Uh, they'd bought new Dell hardware that was sitting on the rack, powered on, doing nothing. If, if you've been in Linux systems administration for any length of time, you know that if you have a common account shared between servers, say the Oracle service account, you want it to have the same UID across all your servers. Otherwise, you run into weird issues where if you have maybe a cluster file system, you you have competition over who actually owns that file. It It's a maddening problem to fix. But when I first started there, they couldn't get their Oracle cluster to talk to each other. So after digging in for probably two or three days, we found out that was the problem. Oracle had a different UID on each of the three servers. So we literally had to schedule an outage on the weekend at night for a system that was not only not production, but it wasn't even live yet to change the UIDs of all the Oracle users, restart the boxes, and relabel all of the files. It, it's just automate. <laughs> Self-documenting automation. It's amazing. <laughs> Wow, that that's that's insane. Yeah, I think this ties in to the to the final tenant, which is auditability. So this is what Brandon was was kind of joking about earlier when he said "get blame." Most people see auditability and they think that it's 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 for the blame game. That there's always the postmortem. There's always the hey, we had this outage. Whose fault was it? Well, code isn't perfect. It may not have been anybody's fault. It might have been, but maybe not. So it's, it's not like the, the audits that we all know and fear. This is audibility for the sake of accountability. When everyone's code is committed back to a series of Git repositories, that information is available to any who have access to those repos. It's almost a form of open source development within a business unit. If a bad change does manage to slip through the automated testing and the QA process, it's easy to find the code commit that broke production. You roll that back to the last known good configuration, then you get with the team who made the failed code change and and triage and correct that failed code. You don't go in to threaten someone's uh, job over their head. You you go in to fix the issue and correct it so that one so that the issue is itself is resolved. Maybe it's a feature that created a, a memory leak. You go in, you fix the memory leak, you redeploy that feature, but then you also look at your you look at your QA process. You look at the automated tests in place and you figure out how do we how do we avoid making the same mistake in the future? How can we catch this the next time around? Not just for also not just for uh, application code. This also goes for configuration. If uh, someone makes a a bad change in a, in a config that takes down Apache, so Apache won't start, you just go and roll back the configuration and fix, and it's fixed. Yeah, you don't have to worry about going and fixing every 
Apache server that's utilizing that configuration. Of course, like if you're doing, if you if you're using something that's super fast and and say you're break it breaks some like salt and then it goes and breaks uh, your ability to SSH into to the machines, yeah, you got a problem. Or, <laughs> uh, and you can't, you can't salt, you can't, uh, quick, it's hard to uh, roll, roll stuff back in, in that example, you got, then you got to go and get out the hard hat. <laughs> it's methodologies like GitOps that allow companies like Pinterest to make every technology person in the company make a code change before the end of their first week. I mean, think about that. Their, their stance on that is if you're going to work in this space, you have to make a code change. You have to do something to trigger a pipeline before the end of your first week. And when the obvious question is, most of us, it's a month before we're into any production systems, but their logic is, if we haven't built up our our automation and our testing well enough that someone brand new can break it, then we haven't done our jobs. That's not a failure on your part. That's a failure on our part. And we need to be able to find those cracks in our dam and fix it before before we have a flood on our hands. So maybe maybe this would make more sense if, if we walked through what this process looks like. So let's say that a developer wants to update the version of, of a code library used in their main business application. So we have an application with supporting libraries. We want to update the version of from one minor version to the next. So the developer would clone down the Git repository from their central repo, whether that's on a GitLab server or GitHub, and make the appropriate changes to the application dependencies, and then commit that back to the Git repository. In a CI/CD enabled environment, this commit would trigger a new deployment pipeline. This would spin up a new server, either on a dev host or a cloud instance, or even directly on the at developer's local machine. If you're using containers, you can spin up a container, say on Kubernetes, wherever the CI, wherever the continuous integration processes are uh, are happening. The next step in the pipeline may be build tests. If those succeed, the build pipeline could spin up a new instance in a staging or pre-production environment. A successful build in a prod-like environment could trigger further scans like security or secrets management and possibly even performance testing. From here, the maturity of the organization will determine what happens next. In an organization that is just starting to adopt build pipelines, deployment to production may require approval or manual deployment of the application to production by either the development team or maybe an SRE, site reliability engineer, or even a platform team. SRE is, from my point of view, our system administrators 2.0. <laughs> uh, yeah, they really are. <laughs> so on the other hand, you know, organizations have embraced the concept of CD, which is stands for continuous deployment, would automatically push to production upon successful completion of the pre-production test suite. Again, this could be production servers, a cloud compute instance, or pods on Kubernetes. This doesn't just need to be a code change to, to an application. You can also take the same methodology of CI/CD and use that, as, as I mentioned before, to your, for your operations automation. So if you make a change to an Ansible playbook, you can use Test Suite in Ansible to and embed that as part of your CI pipeline to do the tests and uh, against against uh, test servers and and then uh, bring that to production. Same concept supply. Getting started with GitOps really depends on the environment that you're working in, the team that you're working for, and the maturity of your your organization's DevOps transformation. 
If it's a greenfield project or a project that is starting completely from scratch, it's easy. You just start building from the ground up. You work with your project team to build the servers, the security mechanisms, and get to a minimally viable product, an MVP, as quickly as possible. Once you have a working application, it's easy to add new features or build more intricate UIs. Don't you wish you'd encounter more greenfield projects in your career, Brandon? I wish I could do more greenfield. That would be a lot of fun. Most of us enter a new job and you're immediately just put onto projects that new, more bodies thrown at it. I've had only a few times where I've had the pleasure of working right on a project that's net new. Sadly, that just isn't the reality. Brownfield, though, doesn't have to be as hard as you might think. Just like with all things, it requires taking things one step at a time. Find a task that is tedious or time-consuming, like provisioning new users. Find a way to automate that task. Is it system patching or updating the root password? Utilize a tool like Ansible to automate that task and repeat. This is why Eric mentioned at the top of the show that GitOps doesn't mean automating yourself out of the job if you're a system administrator. In fact, the more you automate the more valuable you become. You're cha- you're changing the job. Hand that job up, hand the manual tasks that that are easily error prone just from even the most seasoned uh, system administrator fat fingers a command, fat fingers a configuration file. You build the automation and let the automation engine do the rest. You're not automating yourself out of a job, you're now an automation developer. Ooh, I like that. It's really a snowball effect and one that so many engineers find fulfilling. Imagine how it feels to not get paged out on vacation or woken up at 2 a.m. on a Saturday to fix that same server with that same memory issue. You avoid burnout. You have more energy, both physical and mental, and you can focus on higher value work. You spend less time and energy to keep systems in a working state. Then you take that energy and that time that you're saving, you grow that time budget to divide between paying off technical debt, learning new technologies, or focusing on bringing those technologies to bear in your environment. Today, we focus on GitOps, and that's about empowering developers to be able to provision and deploy infrastructure, basically operations tasks, in a manner that operations... Think of, think of concepts like golden images and operations-owned playbooks. It's something that operations has developed and then handed off to developers to say, here, this works, use this, build it on here, and it'll be the same in non-production, pre-production, stage, production, everywhere. Use this, use this image and you'll be fine. This is a great way for operations teams to enable their developers. That's, that's what, the, what the methodology of GitOps uh, applies to. But I think I think what you're what you're getting at that sounds a lot like infrastructure is code, and, and that's exactly what I I think you're driving <laughs> towards, and, and we'll definitely go deeper into topics like gold like like golden images and using workflows with tools like Terraform and Ansible. It's almost a counter methodology. GitOps empowers developers with operations tasks, whereas infrastructure as code takes development methodologies and applies it towards operations. A few weeks ago, we discussed how hard it was to replace proprietary solutions with open source alternatives. One area we both spend a lot of time is in diagram building software. Microsoft Visio, for the longest time, was the de facto leader in this space. Now, an alternative has really been gaining adoption, and that's diagrams.net. Yeah, I've been using diagrams.net. A lot of you may know it as draw.io. They recently changed their name. I don't Remember the exact reason why they did. In terms of open source diagramming software, I find this to be the best alternative to Visio. I've used uh, Dia. I've used LibreOffice Draw. 
which I still actually use quite a lot. I love LibreOffice Draw, especially if it's something I just want to get done that's super simple. Diagrams.net integrates with Google Drive. It integrates with um, NextCloud. What I really like about it is I can self-host it, say, with NextCloud. I've used Visio on off of Office 365, but if you if I'm using Linux, I can't I don't have offline access. And I've also used Lucidchart, you don't have offline access. Diagrams.net basically fits the bill simply because it works very well with uh Visio stencils. It has its own ecosystem of stencils. I know you started using it too, Eric, for at work. Yeah, ever ever since you uh, turned me on to diagrams.net, I've I've used it for a couple of different projects. Uh, in fact, two or three different generations of of planning for my home lab, and then we we're building a hardware based OpenShift lab uh, at the office. So I've really been enjoying how simplistic it is. And in fact, uh, for my for my home lab, I know this will come as a shock to everyone, but one of my favorite features is the ability to save to GitLab. So I have a version controlled file. Uh, that maintains my my home lab diagram. And as I build it out, as I add additional servers, additional switches, I plan to keep that diagram up to date so that I always know how my lab is is laid out and uh, be able to to use it with an open source tool like diagrams.net. Yeah, that's really cool uh, that you can use source control as a backend. That way you can track the changes in a diagram. Actually, this goes back, kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, with V1, V2 of of, uh, (laughs) configuration files. Uh, I was doing the same thing with Visio on a shared drive with uh, other architects when I was at United Health Group. And someone act one time accidentally overwrote the, the master copy and we had to rebuild it. <laughs> and, what's au- and what's great about diagrams.net, because it's using Git as the back end, it can, uh, uh, you can revert back. And, and since it's just using XML, it, it just is in obvious text so you can see the change that was made and i think that's really cool yeah it's a great tool and it really helps um you know this this is the productivity corner but i i think the tools are just as important as is how you use them and diagrams.net really fits really fits that need in fact if, if you have tools or methodologies that you follow to to improve your productivity at home please send those in we would love your feedback. We'd love your your ideas. And Brandon and I are always open to trying a new tool or a new uh, new approach to getting work done. With that being said, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to sudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find us over at sudo.show and on social media at sudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. The DLN website and the merch store have both received huge facelifts and now include new products for the network and our own Pseudo Show mug. So, so I get to level up my permissions on my coffee? <laughs> I'm not sure how to respond to that. <laughs> you don't even need to. <laughs> Yeah, sure, Brandon. We'll we'll go with that. Meantime, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson <laughs> or my website, open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise, open source, and coffee. Until next time. <laughs> that worked. That worked. 